I was uh, once preaching at my father's church, and uh, every time I'd make a motion with my hands, which is quite often, um, I saw this little poof of something coming out of my sleeve, and I, I didn't, you know, in my mind I was trying to preach, and yet I was trying to figure out too what was going on with with what was in my jacket. Every time I'd do this number, it'd just poof out. And I just kept in this side too, and I, these little flakes were kind of. Hmm. And so I was trying to preach, and I was trying to think, and I was trying to, you know, order my thoughts. And eventually, I figured it out about halfway through that it was, um, it was uh, my skin that had been peeling from a sunburn uh, that was that was poofing out of the. Uh, it was just making a, making like a shooting thing or something. That I don't have that problem today, but apparently I was just informed that my forehead is starting to peel. So just just bear with me as that happens. Hopefully we won't have any flakes flying around, but nonetheless. Um, if you look at Genesis 12, uh, you know, they say the best kind of humor is self-deprecating, so I just practiced that. Um, but if you'll look at Genesis 12, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at Genesis 12 and also 15. So we're going to kind of read a little bit and then flip over a couple pages to chapter 15. Notice, notice these first three verses. This is some of the... Um, these, these three verses right here change humanity. Changes the entire world. Notice, and by the way, by the way, uh, let, me, let me just advertise momentarily. If you, uh, if you don't, you say, hey, the, the scripture reading is not on the screen. Yeah, that's because I want you to actually look at it yourself. So that's why we've got Bibles in the baskets below right there in front of you. So if you would, just take one of those Bibles. It'll be the same translation that I'm using here. And you can actually see for yourself. It is actually important that you see it for yourself. Uh, this is what John just said to us from 1 John. I've heard it. I've seen it with my own eyes. So notice this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, flip over maybe one page in your Bible and go to chapter 15 and 17. When the sun had gone down, and by the way, just to set it up a little bit, uh, he had already put a ram, a lamb, uh, other animals, and he had half them. He had split them in half, cut them in half. Now, that would be quite a job to begin with, if you've ever ever skinned an animal or to eat or whatnot, think about splitting one in half. Now, you, he laid the pieces down. This was an old way of making a covenant. And now notice what happens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, the pieces of animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenizzites, the Ketamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and Mosquito Bites, um, all the ites. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. And... We pray now that you would bless this reading of your word and also now the preaching of it to our ears so that we can hear you. We want to hear you. I want to hear you. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So about 48 hours ago, uh, I was sitting there in what seemed to be paradise. You know, with my feet in the sand, listening to the ocean as the waves came in and out, in and out, which is nonstop, as you know, and has been for thousands and thousands of years ever since the world was created. It's been this way. And it's something about the ocean. It's something about the beach that seems to be relaxing. It's why people pay money to go just sit at the beach. I mean, you know, there, there are certain places in the world that you don't really pay money to go and sit. Um, but the beach is one of those places where it seems as if there is something idyllic about it. There's something calming, peaceful uh, about the beach. And so there I was with the family, you know, and I'm just chilled out with the shade, in the shade, you know, and I'm just thinking about uh, God and His creation and, my, and the family that He's given me and, and you and our church and just all, all the good things. And then Saturday, you know, I hit the grind again. I'm back to work uh, all day long, you know, working on stuff. And, I, and I, I was sitting there thinking after about, you know, six hours of work. And I'd been at the computer and I just kind of felt sick because I'm sitting there looking at this screen for so long. I'm thinking, why am I not at the beach? You know what I mean? Like, why am I, why am I sitting here in this hard chair at this table, you know, working on a computer, looking at, a, looking at an LCD screen? Like, why is this happening? Back to reality, as we say, right? And, you know, it kind of struck me in that moment that this is sort of what happens to us after Easter, isn't it? You know, we get in here on Easter, we have such a huge day. I mean, everybody's happy, everybody's dressed up, you know, everything's going great. I mean, it's just a beautiful day, a beautiful time of the year. And then all of a sudden, Monday rolls around. Then all of a sudden, you go back to your job. Then you go back to a bunch of complaining people. Then you go back to problems. Then you go back to having to work, maybe having to suffer, remembering your suffering, remembering the fact that you still have 20 years to retire or however many years it is until you stop working or you're dead. Either one will do for some. And some of us very quickly lose sight of what happened at Easter. I mean, it's just it's just stolen away from us just like that. Just like my beach trip was, you know. We were only there for two days, but it was, it was an awesome two days. It was great. And then I had to go back. And yet, you know, life is like that. We have these high points. We're up on the mountain where we can see clearly. I mean, everything just seems clear. You know, clear above visibility. Unlimited. And yet, we get in the valley and we lose focus. We, we're, there are shadows that are being cast. And we, we lose our way. So the question it really is this. What did Easter do? I mean, if it did something life-changing, then you think you would feel it on Monday, right? You would think you felt it on a Thursday when things are just dreary and it's been a long week. You would think it would make a difference that you could see. And yet, many times, you can't see it. Many times, we lose sight. So in order to answer that question, I just want to, want to start at the beginning. You remember Adam and Eve, God created them. He created them good. He created them holy. He did not create them bad. The body is not bad. That, you know, that's, that's one thing that distinguishes Christianity, by the way, 
from almost every other, actually every other religion, uh, is that we are very, if you can follow this, we're very material in Christianity. In other words, it matter, matter matters. If I can use sort of a, some alliteration there. Matter matters to God. He created matter. He likes your body. He likes the trees. He likes the ocean. He's the one who did that. He likes animals. That's why He created so many of them and a variety of them. And He likes humans because He created. And everything He created, the Bible says, was good. And yet, and yet we failed. I say we because we've all done exactly what they did. You say, well, you know, what if Adam and Eve had not eaten the fruit? Well, you would have. I would have. We all have. And this is what Romans is going to say. Uh, Paul says in Romans that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He, he could have easily just said, we've all taken of the fruit. Now, it's really interesting to me that the first sin has to do not with adultery. That wasn't possible. Not with murder, which was possible, but it didn't happen. Not with some of the big sins, right? It was over food. Food. One command, do not eat of this. And it looked appealing. And through the trickery of Satan, the serpent, she took and ate. Gave to her husband and he ate. And we failed God. We missed the mark. Something changed. All of a sudden now, this paradise, literally, the Garden of Eden, as we, as we even come to think of it as a para, paradisical place, now becomes a place where they hide from each other. They hide from God. And it's comical to us that they're hiding from God, but we hide from God. We try to hide things from God as if He doesn't see them. <laughs> um, but He sees it all. And He comes asking us, just like He asked them, where are you? I mean, it's the question that I, that I always have in the back of my mind. Where are Marshall, where are you? And sometimes, I'm looking at the fruit tree, you follow me? I'm looking at the wrong one. I'm looking in the wrong place for my happiness. I'm looking to disobey. You ever caught your gaze? The Holy Spirit ever nudged you? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this where you find happiness? Haven't you already been down this road? I can't help but think of the Matrix when, when Neo is, is resisting you know, them getting this bug out of him in the very first Matrix. And they go down this. It's a beautiful scene. They, they open the door and there's a long hall, you know, there's a long kind of tunnel and it's raining. And she says... You're free to go if you want, but you've been down that road. You know exactly where it leads. And haven't we been down that road of sin long enough? Haven't we? He didn't give up in the car. He kept going even though he didn't know what was going to happen. And you know what? Salvation's like that. You don't know what God is going to call you to do. <laughs> I don't want to serve God because He might call me to Africa. Well, you know what? He might call you to your neighbor next door. He might actually call you to tell somebody at work about God. He's really interested in the people right here, you know? That's not to downplay missions. Missions are very important. International missions, that's great. But you know what? Africa is having a revival that we're not seeing in America. Amen. 
Africa will be the next center for Christianity. America is not. And so we are called here. We are called to Him. And when we go to Him, we don't know what's going to happen. Any more than when you met your husband or your wife or your best friend. You didn't know what was going to happen at the beginning of that relationship. That's why it's so scary. That's why it takes time to think about. That's why it takes faith. That's why it takes love. And this is what He calls us to, isn't it? Faith, hope, love. It's a relationship. And if you've made it into something else, then you're missing the mark. You're not seeing God for who He is. And so they're hiding. They're hiding. And it's really interesting what God does. He comes in and says, where are you? And then they say, well, we, uh, we kind of messed up a little bit here. <laughs> but it was her fault. It was His fault. It was its fault, the serpent. And so God actually curses each of them. All three of them. And the curse was not so negative things could happen. Actually, the curse was so that positive things can happen. They had done something. They had tangled themselves up into something that could not be undone by themselves. Have you ever caught that back in Genesis 3? You ought to re, really read it, reread Genesis 3. They made fig leaves for themselves. But you know what? That wasn't enough. That was their plan of salvation. They had whipped something together, and you've seen the painting, you know, the old paintings of the little leaves on them and stuff, you know. That was their design. It wasn't God's. If you'll notice, God curses them, and in cursing all three of them, in the middle of that, there's a promise that through the woman, now remember, the woman was the initiator of the fruit. Of taking the of desiring the fruit, of talking to the serpent. And now through woman, the promise says, will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. He'll bruise his heel, yes, but he'll crush his head. Now, that's just another way of saying he's going to put him out of commission. It's going to be out. And if you remember at the beginning of the Passion of the Christ, Jesus is praying in the garden. You have this scene and this snake, this serpent slithers up and he, boom, he stomps it. Now, I love that scene because I'm, I'm you know, not a fan of the serpent type. Uh, I think the curse extends even today to those serpents, those belly, you know, dirt belly crawlers or whatever you want to call them. Um, and so he crushed his head. The promise was given. And you know what God did after he gave that promise? He made sort of a covenant with them. God killed an animal. You say, I don't remember reading that. Well, didn't He put animal skins on them? Well, you can't put a live animal skin on somebody. He actually, that was the first sacrifice. That was the first blood sacrifice already in chapter 3. God has to kill an animal because of them. One of His creations has to die because they did something. And when we sin, when I sin, it affects God's world. And so He's done something about it. This is what Easter celebrates. This is what the Paschal mystery is about. Paschal being Passover. Easter, to do with Easter. And it is a mystery what God did. We talked about that last week. Righteousness. How are we made right with God? It's a complicated thing. It's not something easy. You say, well, you know, Jesus died for our sins and that just takes care of it all. Okay, well, how does that happen? Where's the transfer happen? 
I mean, some of you are engineers, and so you're asking those questions. And so over the next few weeks, I'm actually going to unpack how we're made right. Now, again, it, God's going to be laughing at us, okay? He's going to be laughing at me in particular, saying, ha, you're just scratching the surface, man. But you know, it'll be our attempt, okay? And so today I want to sort of give an overview. I want to go to the beginning of the story. How are we made right with God? It begins with Abraham. Chapter 12 is really where things get going. As far as salvation goes, the, the ball gets kicked in chapter 12. Up to that point, you have the sin of a couple, a married couple, Adam and Eve. Then it moves to the fratricide, murder of brother to brother. So you go from a couple now to the family then to the nations, then to the entire world, to where in chapter 6 of Genesis, God says, I'm very sorry that I actually made mankind. And so He sends a flood to cleanse the world and start over with Noah and his family. Noah being an upright man. And so, not his family, but Noah himself was upright. And because of his uprightness, whoever gets under him is then saved. Sound familiar? God has already started His plan of salvation, and that plan is going to include humans. And so, in chapter 12, after, even after they get off the boat, more sin, more sin. I mean, it's, it's like a spiral of sin until you get to chapter 12. And then we hear this promise. Again, it's just a simple promise. Just as He gave in Genesis 3, now He gives again. And He, and he says really just three things to Abraham. Now, now, now notice this promise. Just follow, follow this train of thought here. And he doesn't come to Abraham and say, you know what, Abraham? I'm going to sanctify you holy, buddy. I'm going to, to make you a real saint among your... No, he actually just says, Abraham, I'm going to give you some land. Abraham, I'm going to give you a name. I mean, I'm going to make you really famous. And Abraham, I'm going to give you a family. So family, fame, land. Hey, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Most of us, in some way or another, seek those three things, don't we? We all want our little lot in life. Our little place where we can call our own. We want to be known for something. We want a family. We want to be connected. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you these three things. He didn't say, I might give you or it's conditional. He said, I'm going to. It's a promise. And here's what the Bible says. Abraham believed that. And because he believed it, it was counted to him as righteousness. So in other words, Abraham was not right on his own. He was, we're told he was an upright man. But it's because of God's righteousness in his faith. So he believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. Now, here's what's really, really, uh, really fascinating is when you come to the New Testament, Paul is going to use an example of what true faith looks like. Now, I would have probably used Moses. I mean, Moses was was a serious guy of faith, you know. I mean, he had to go through a lot, right? David, another guy of faith. You think of the prophets, another person. You know, people of faith, again. You know, there's plenty of examples about people. Who does Paul use? He uses Abraham. Why? 
Why does he use Abraham? Why is Abraham known as the father of faith? You remember, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Nobody's with me? No? Yeah. I am one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, right arm, you know, right arm, left arm, blah, blah, blah. And you start doing all this crazy stuff right in VBS. Well, the point is, he is the father of faith. Why? I think it's because it's a true, pure faith. In other words, Abraham doesn't have the law. He doesn't have the Ten Commandments. He doesn't have a temple. He doesn't have a land of his own. God has not sent missionaries to Abraham. God, Abraham doesn't have a king. Abraham doesn't have a Levitical priesthood. He doesn't have a way for atonement. He doesn't have any prayers to go off of. He doesn't have a Bible. All Abraham has is a promise from God. That's it. But that's enough. God is enough. We always like to say, hey, to become a Christian, you have to have Jesus plus all this other stuff. I call it Jesus plus. No. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. He is enough. And when you trust Jesus, that's enough. He is enough. Now, everything else will come. You know, Baptism will come. All this other kind of stuff will come. That, that's part of our obedience. But a true faith, Paul says, it's going to be like Abraham's. You say, well, I didn't think somebody could be saved without being baptized. Abraham was. Unless I'm misreading something here. I didn't think you could be saved without this. Or, or the way we do it in church. Or the way we used to do it at this church. I didn't think you'd be saved if you didn't have... Jesus is enough. We add things, and when Jesus comes, the Pharisees had added things, didn't they? Oh, you've got to wash your hands like this. Jesus said, no, you actually don't. Hey, you can't eat that. Yeah, they can. Don't you remember David? That's what Jesus says. Jesus purposefully breaks their laws in order to show that His law is the most important. His promises are the most important. Stop listening to the world. Stop listening to other church members. Listen to Jesus. Amen. Jesus is enough. When you have Him, you have everything. When you don't have Him, you have nothing. No matter how much you have. You have nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Abraham was righteous before God because he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, God is not sitting on a bench somewhere declaring judgments, hitting his gavel, you know, which is a ceremonial mallet. He's not, boom! Boom! He's not, he's not, he's not up there like Zeus striking people with lightning. He's not on a throne demanding that we make ourselves right. Come into conformity with me. I mean, that's my problem as a, as a pastor all the time. I, I want to get up here and be like, hey, you should sing like this. Hey, you should be doing this. You should be doing a disciple. You should be witnessing like that. That's not how Jesus came doing. No, He did it. And as He did it, people picked up on it. 
That's a harder way to teach people. Trust me, I'd much rather do like I do it with my students, you know, and just be like, do this, you know. They actually pay to be there, you don't. That's a big difference. And so, God isn't on a throne somewhere demanding, so He's not on a bench judging us. Instead, the picture in the Bible, there's really three main pictures. One is that He's king. He's not a king that's just sitting there demanding stuff. Instead, He's an active king. He's, he's, a, he's a loving king. He's a king that actually wants to go into covenant with His people. Now remember, I told you that this was an ancient way of making a covenant was to split these animals. It's actually called a suzerainty covenant. And we actually have found archaeologically these covenants and we know how they work. And what's crazy is they line up exactly with the Genesis story. Go figure! By the way... Archaeology always and only has proved the Bible, never disproved anything. There, there's no, you're not going to dig up something that's going to disprove the Bible. We should not be scared of archaeology. We should not be scared of scientific inquiry. He made science. There's nothing to be afraid of. And so we know that a suzerainty was actually a king. It was a king ruler. That's what suzerain, what, that's what suzerain is. And so what, what they would have done is, is, a, is the king would have went into covenant with his people. And it was normally, it was normally this top-heavy, you know, the king's got the money, the king's got the land, the king's got the power. The people don't. But the people can pay taxes. The people can make the place better. And they can work. And this sort of, so there is a relationship that would be formed. The way they would solidify that relationship is you would have a representative of the people, you would have the king. And they would split these animals in half, which again... Just a lot of times we read over stuff and we're just like, oh, okay, da, 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 da. just think about that real quick. A goat, a sheep, you know, a calf being split in half. That would take a little time, I would imagine, and quite a sharp knife. And then they split them in half and lay them out all the way down to a bird. And then the suzerain, the king, would walk through and he would recite what he's going to do. I promise to do this and this and that. And I promise not to be mean and you know, kill people without uh, you know, a jury and this sort of thing. And he would walk through the animal house. Then the, the representative would come through and he would walk through saying, we promise to obey the king, we promise to obey the laws of the land, da, 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 da. and he would walk through. Now, you know, why, why, the, why the grotesqueness? Why the, why the barbarism? Um, well... It's saying something very specific, and that is, if you break covenant, that's going to be you. So as you're walking through, you're like, ooh, ooh, ah, that looks tough right there. Mm, I hate that. That's going to be you if you break covenant. The king or the people. Dead. What's funny, what we read in 15, you may not have caught it. Abraham is put into a deep sleep. So Abraham prepares the covenant, right? He prepares it, but he's put in a deep sleep when it's when the sun is sunset. And in this smoking pot, you ever heard of this term in church? Some, some of you have, some of you won't. Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. Well, that's that pot. It's, it's a pot with a torch on it, and it comes through, and it, this represents Yahweh. And, and Yahweh literally walks through the animal halves. Abraham doesn't. Because this covenant is not conditioned on Abraham. And God is saying, if I break covenant with Abraham, you can split me in half. Of course, that's impossible. 
He won't. He's always faithful, right? Semper Fi, live or die. This is the creed that God Himself lives by. He is always faithful. And so God walks through the halves. Abraham never does. The covenant that God makes, He binds Himself to us. Now let me ask you a question real quick. Did those promises come true in Abraham's life? No. Abraham never had the land. Abraham never saw his family become great. His name famous. Never happened in his lifetime. But let me ask you another question, and that is, has it come true? (laughs) Well, just turn on your local news. What you're going to see in in a 30-minute news segment, somebody will mention Israel. Somebody's going to mention that little slither of land that seems to be so controversial. That's the land God gave to them. And it's still hanging around today. Who doesn't know about the Israelites or Israel? I mean, there may be some remote place in the world, but today with cell phones, I mean, I'm in India, you know, with shacks, and everybody's got cell phones. There's really no excuse not to low international news. And when you know international news, you're going to bump into, guess who? This small group of people known as the Jews. They're very famous. They're in all the history books. You cannot erase, you cannot tell history without talking about them. So God made them famous. You know, here I am, I walk into a Barnes Noble back in 2005, and lo and behold, on the front page of Newsweek magazine, in a nice red robe was Abraham. Somebody taking this picture, I guess. And there he was in 2005 on the front. Now, how many people really make the front cover of a secular news magazine? But Abraham did. Why? Because God promised it. He's going to be famous for all time. <laughs> and you know what the Bible calls us to? Is to be a son, a daughter of Abraham. But you know what? Jesus kind of tweaks, tweaks that a little bit when He comes, doesn't He? You know what He tells the Jews? Which really get them angry? Which really set them on a course to kill Him? Is He said, You say that you are children of Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> Whoo, you talk about making Jew mad? They understood clearly that he was saying he existed before Abraham. Now, only God could do that. And he followed up with ego me, which in the Greek is I, I myself, which is I am. Which, again, is reminiscent in the Old Testament, right? When he goes to Moses at the burning bush, he says, What is your name? What should, who should I say has sent us? I am. Before Abraham was Yahweh. I am. This is a clear call and confession of divinity in a human. Again, I told you at the beginning, God's plan for righteousness always is going to involve humans. So God makes this covenant with a human, one human, Abraham. And He says, through this one human, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. The entire world will be blessed or the entire world will be cursed by Abraham and his family. This is where at Harvest Point we get our motto, 
You're blessed to be a blessing. God doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to load you up, man, just so you can kind of have it and enjoy it. Just, just do, you know, spend it all. Whatever. No, you're blessed to be a blessing. This is exactly the promise. You know what? That extends out to us. Now, God has done something in Jesus Christ. This is what Easter's about. Where now, instead of walking through animal halves, He Himself is the sacrifice for sin. Once and for all. You see, if I was 3,000 years removed from where I am today, I'd be sacrificing animals most of my you know, Sabbath. But instead today, we don't have to. No more splitting of the animals. Instead, there's been one sacrifice, blood sacrifice, for all of humanity. And this time, Jesus is the one who goes to the Holy of Holies for us on our behalf. And now, not just Abraham, but through one person, Jesus, all of the world has been affected. So rewind all the way back to the beginning where we started. What is what is what is Easter change? You know, just like it's, it's the same kind of to me. It's the same kind of abruptness as going from the beach back to your work. Easter back to reality, and yet everything's changed. Everything's new. Not just perspective wise. Not just on faith. You say, oh, you're just saying everything's changed for those who believe. No, no, no. Everything has changed. Whether you see it or not, that doesn't matter. You're not in charge of God. You're not in charge of His salvation. It doesn't end or fall or begin on you. Can I let you in on a little secret? God doesn't need us. That may be shocking to some of you, but His, his day doesn't rise on or fall upon whether you obey Him or not. Whether you like Him or not. He doesn't need us at all. Any more than I need my children. I don't need my children. My day doesn't rise or fall on them. If they try to make me angry, which they do sometimes on purpose, trying to get their way, they try to make me mad, they try to yell or cry or do whatever, I don't let it bother me. I don't need them. They're not paying the bills. And yet, I want them. I mean, evolutionary-wise, it'd be better not to have children. If you're looking at the evolutionary schema, it's way better just not to have children. They're going to drain your resources. In evolution, you want to excel. You want to crush. You want to get the benefit for yourself to move on. No, having a bunch of children is not the way you proceed in life if, if you're in it for, for that. No, no, they're going to drain you. God doesn't need us, but He wants us. That alone ought to be shocking to you. It is to me. He wants you. Yes, you. Even with what you've done, even with what you've tangled yourself into, He wants you. Look, Abraham, he wasn't right in his actions just yet. God wasn't done with him. And yet he was declared righteous. Because he believed. Because he had faith. That's 
enough today? Do you believe in the salvation that He offers you today? Everything has changed. It's not dependent on you. This is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. Any more than my life is dependent on my children. No, they try to get me to do something, and it's, it's laughable. Well, you know, one of them will be pushing at me, trying to move me over to the Ninja Turtles. The other one's trying to argue with me about why they should have a Ninja Turtle. And I even want to give them... I, I'm sort of a collector, you know? I want to buy the Ninja Turtle. One of them's throwing himself in the floor as if that's going to help. A lot of times I just mimic them. Ah! ah and just throw myself... And they're like... They stop and they're like, What's going on? I'm like, What's going on with you? This is what you're doing. No. We cannot control God any more than my children can control me. And that's a really tough place to be, isn't it? I mean, you know that feeling when you want something to happen and you, that person just simply says no. Ugh! Right? We just, ah, it, it's, it makes us out of our mind almost. And, and my kids get that way. You know, they just, why, daddy? And you just want to cry. The Bible says don't cry. The Bible just says believe. He wants to give you good gifts. He wants to give you the best gift. He has given you the best gift. It's His Son. We're just too childish and self-centered. I am to see it. Jesus is the greatest gift of God. For God so loved the world that He gave us His only Son, the one and only begotten, eternal Son of God, the one who that was before Abraham was. The one who can only claim, I am the one who defines everything in this creation, including your next breath. You see, He's already done it all. Easter's changed it all. Everything has changed. Everything centers on Jesus Christ. God doesn't need you, but He wants you. And the best of all is, God is with us. That was the last words of John Wesley before he died. He said, the best of all is... I mean, after a life of living for God, and you know, makes, makes any of our lives probably look, uh, look a little bleak. He says at the very end of his life, the best of all is God is with us. Is He in you? Is He with you? Are you with Him? He's already done it all. It's our turn to believe. So this morning, believe in Him. And all things will be made new. Amen.